if you want to be worthy and you actually do something with your life, you've got to get good results. But no one actually really showed you back then, well, how do you actually get good results? Like, if you're academic, great. But if you're not, how do you actually obtain goals? How do you set a goal? And I don't think back in the education system, and I still don't believe consistently across the board, I'll be really educating people to really understand how do you actually achieve a goal? And I'm sure you work with a number of clients where you see people say a goal, but I think there's a confusion between what a goal is and what a wish is. How do you get 10,000 people to take a step to the left? What's behind the relentless mindset of a world champion? Why do teams of exceptional talent fail? How do you manage the pressure to perform? These are just some of the curious questions we will attempt to answer as we bring you world leaders, curious minds, exceptional talent, successful CEOs, and incredible human beings who know how to inspire great leaders and are inspiring great leaders themselves. I am Craig Johns, high performance leadership expert, international speaker, and CEO of Speakers Institute Corporate and World Sport Coach. This is the Inspiring Great Leaders podcast with ordinary don't belong. Welcome to the Inspiring Great Leaders podcast. Today, I'm looking forward to sitting down and having a great conversation about increasing performance, productivity, and revenue through the power of neuroscience, leadership, and business performance strategies. Our guest from Sydney, Australia is the author of recently released Rewire for Success and is a key facilitator of the IAG Insurance Leading Change and one of 12 facilitators globally to roll out the Microsoft Change Management and coaching program to 15,000 leaders. She has a Bachelor of Commerce in Marketing from Macquarie University, Marketing Management Executive Program at Northwestern University Kellogg School of Management, and has studied in sales behavior profiling and has an advanced diploma in neuroscience of leadership. Her career has included marketing roles at Microsoft, Kronos, and Trend Micro, before making a career shift to found the neuroscience company Link Success and consult for Enhancing Performance. I'm honored and privileged to introduce to you a wonderful human being who is fascinated by peak mental performance in the workplace and is passionate about helping people be more resilient, innovative, happier, and healthier employees, Vanessa McCamley, Vanessa, welcome to the show. Thank you, Craig. Beautiful welcome there. <laughs> uh, and it's good. And, and it's nice to hear you're safe there in Sydney with the, the lots of rain and the potential floods that are coming through that part of the world. It, it's, uh, it's an interesting uh, summer this year with weather-wise. Absolutely. So you might hear some raindrops, um, viewers, today. <laughs> yeah, uh, which is fantastic. Now, look, to start with, I, I would like to know from you, what has what is the a most compelling example of outstanding leadership you have seen in the past 12 months? 
most outstanding leadership for me has been, there's been a few things that I have really seen, but I'm really channeling one executive that I've worked with who's just amazing. She's a CIO of Johnson & Johnson. And I would say that she has been vulnerable with her team. So she's been very honest and transparent about her own learning journey, but very encouraging and empathetic to her team. She's learned about what burnout meant to her through um, the starts of COVID and then being able to create a vision with her people, not her determine the vision, but she worked with the people to come up with a vision about how they were going to support business, not just here in Australia, New Zealand, but also in Asia on how to build resilience and how to self-care. So I would say being that wellness coach as well as um, a business leader. Yeah, and interesting, you know, I think it's great to hear that you've got a a personal example of someone you're working with. Uh, For me, it's quite interesting. I I feel uh, burnout is misunderstood. I feel it is a term that is overused. Um, And and I'm really curious to find out from you what burnout means, because I see lots in the media. uh, I've studied in this space, but I still feel that it is an over misused term in the fact that I can be really, I can love what I'm doing. I can be extremely tired and I can have some of the symptoms of burnout, but I'm not burnt out. So I would really like to know from you, how would you describe burnout? So let me explain it, I guess, from my own burnout. And it's like anything, right? So whenever we have a challenge or or an issue, what it is for one person could be slightly different for someone else. So burnout is a broad term. But burnout is sort of basically from a neurochemical perspective is is when when you're in a threat state over and over and over again. So what happens, have you heard of the amygdala, which is uh, at the centre of the brain, which is our principle of our brain of navigating, keeping us safe for survival? Hmm. Well, the amygdala has that fight, flight, freeze signal. When we're constantly in a threat state, so if you think about peak performance and you will get this very well because I know this is your area of specialty but if I asked you let me ask you a question I'm going to throw it over to the other foot what does peak flow look like for you peak flow is when you're in a in a state of it is it is happening intuitively and you are in a situation where you're can get into an out-of-body experience and be able to view what's going on from different angles and and have that self-awareness, situational awareness and environmental awareness of what's going on at that time. Uh, And and for me, uh, I suppose I'm someone who looks at real high-end flow versus just kind of a basic flow uh, because of where I've been as a high-performing athlete and, and coach. And so to me, it's it's getting to the out-of-body state. That's when you are in flow. What does distress look like for you? So when do you, when you're in that flow, where do you get the point where you start to tip into de-stress? What does that look like for you? Uh, 
in that situation, what would that look like? It's a very good question. I've never actually been asked that question, and I like that. Um, I don't see flow as a stress distress, uh, like distress situation. To me, as a flow is a mental state that you're in versus a a physical energy or um, or mental energy point of view. So okay. I, I see it a little bit different. So let me ask you another way. So go back to your uh, sports peak performance for me. When did you get to the point where you you were doing really, really well, but then you just pushed it too far? What did that look like for you? Yeah, sure. The, you, your reaction's a bit slower. You're not as fast. You make mistakes uh, in that situation. Were uh, you getting fatigued, tired? Of course, yeah, you're in fatigue. I mean, high performance is... Uh, if you look at a steep mountain, say in the uh, in the Himalayas, etc., you're, you're walking along that ridge, mm. and and it's it's a steep curve to get to. Like to get to that real pointy end of high performance is a steep curve. It's very difficult to get to the top. But once you get to the top, the ledge is very small, and you can easily tip over to being unwell, unhealthy. In that and, situation. Th and this is what happens from a neurochemical perspective is that if we go into de-stress so there is a fine line what you're saying between being in peak performance and then we overdo it and then when we start to go into de-stress that means our neurochemicals change and when the neurochemicals start to change and we stay there for too long this is what actually starts to lead to burnout and a whole number of illnesses that then start. It's like a chain reaction. So it's a threat state and being in a threat state for long periods of time that leads us to not being able to function properly. Our, our rational brain is not online enough. So we're, we're basically navigating through our emotional center of the brain, which is the center of the brain. And so what happens is that when, when we are in a threat state, we send cortisol, which is a stress hormone, to our prefrontal cortex, which actually locks you out. Have you heard the term flipping your lid? Hmm. And it basically does that. So you basically send oxygen and blood flow. It goes down to your lungs and your heart to prepare you for that fight, flight, freeze. So what does burnout look like for me? So I'll give you an example. If I go back over 15 years ago, I experienced burnout myself where I was on a plane probably every two, three weeks traveling around the Asia Pacific region. I had Asia Pac responsibilities. I always served others. And so I was always making sure that I was there for my team and there for events and, and all those great things. So I was working long hours. And even though I exercised and I ate well, um, I was always conscious of health, but I was constantly go, 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 go. And I thought back then, this is before I had this beautiful neuroscience um, learnings and studies, is I thought if I'm constantly on the go and I'm constantly achieving, then I'll reach all my goals but what happened is that the targets year on year were getting bigger and bigger. And in the organizations that I was working for, fast growth, so double digit growth year on, year out. And what happened is I just kept giving it more and more till I had nothing more to give. 
And so then I was making poor decisions. Um, then my reactions to things was heightened, okay? So for something small, I would be reacting in a different way. And I wasn't leading effectively, and I didn't know that at the time because I thought, well, I'm, I'm over everything and being a bit of perfectionist at the time. So perfectionism is a behaviour that I've had to work on over the years to be able to have my own business. And, for example, with perfectionism, I always wanted to, I had this belief system that if you're going to do something, do it well or don't do it at all. And then I just spread myself too thin. Then I had my son and my son was had a lot of health challenges. And so I wasn't sleeping at one stage. I was lucky to get two hours sleep per night. And all of this just piled and I had no energy and I just got sick and tired. And at the same time, my mentor in New Zealand, who amazing guy, he reminded me of James Dean, if anyone can remember the actor from the 50s on the Harley and the leathers and just a really inspirational guy. He also got burnt out because we, again, double digit growth. We had this pressure from the business to deliver with less resources, <laughs> less time, less budget, less everything. And it's like, we just hit this ceiling to go, I don't know where to go. I'm giving you everything I've got, but I've got nothing left to give. And for me, burnout was, was starting to get tiring and that tiring and not having energy led to really not feeling well to then going to see the doctor and then finding out that I had the starter, the starting of cervical cancer. And then that started to change my world. And then my mentor later on got sick as well. But the difference was he ended up dying at the age of 45 and left his beautiful, beautiful partner and his daughters behind. And I thought to myself back then, there has to be another way to reach goals and to be at peak performance without impacting our mental health and well-being. And it wasn't until years later that I, I discovered I was given some neuroscience books on leadership and I just couldn't put it down. And I just wanted to read and read and read and read and read. And I'm not a natural reader just to put it out there. So I'm not one of these people who just love to read, but this just got me so curious that I knew that there had to be a way to bridge. How do we actually achieve companies' visions and goals, but in brain-friendly ways? Yeah, very good. And, and obviously your instance there is a very clear defined in burnout, but I still feel like burnout is used too often. You know, for instance, uh, people would consider when I work 70 to 80 hours a week for 302 days straight and flatlined as burnout. It wasn't. I had, I had gone overtired and I had pushed my body, but I was still loving everything I was doing. I still had a very clear thought train, but it wasn't burnout. So it was excess tiredness and excess stress on my, uh, on my body that created that to a situation where the heart shut down, but it wasn't burnout. So I still think there needs to be a little bit more clearly defined what burnout is because I still feel like it's too broad. So it's, and you know, when people talk about, oh, you know, 80 to 90% of people in the workforce have had 
you know, uh, burn out at some point. Well, I'm, I'm not so sure about that. People got tired, sure. People don't enjoy what they do, sure. But has it actually got to that point of burnout? Mm. It's still a question in my mind. And do I have the exact definition? Not yet. But I still that don't. That could be a research project for you. <laughs> I think I've got enough on my plate, hasn't it? <laughs> um, but, it, but, it is, but it is interesting, you know, when we come back to leadership and it's not only leading other people, it's leading yourself. The core of that is energy management right? It is physical energy, it's mental energy, it is um, you know, the neuro, uh, neuro energy and that that's going on. It is how do you proactively manage your energy? And I think that is, is something really important. We will dive into that a bit more, but I, I'd like to go back in time here a little bit here. I'm really curious, where, did, where were you born? And for you, what inspired you as a child? So I was born in Port Macquarie on the mid-north coast. And back then, uh, it was probably only had a population of just over 10,000 people. So a small country town, loved the beach. We lived right near the beach. My school was around the corner, very, very easy to walk to, and grew up with beautiful neighbours where everybody knew everything about everybody, which had its benefits and um, cons, particularly when you're a teenager and you were sneaking out. <laughs> and, you know, for me back then, I, from an education perspective, I didn't know anything else. So public school systems was pretty much the only thing that was really, really familiar to me back then. And I had this horrible year advisor, which my siblings, I'm one of four, my siblings had had previously and also said the same, same thing. But he had this scare tactic. His leadership was about fear, right? So he basically told the whole of the year is if you want to be worthy and you actually do something with your life, you've got to get good results, but no one actually really showed you back then, well, how do you actually get good results? Like if you're academic, great. But if you're not, how do you actually obtain goals? How do you set a goal? And I don't think back in the education system and I still don't believe consistently across the board are we really educating people to really understand how do you actually achieve a goal? And I'm sure you work with a number of clients where you see people say a goal but I think there's a confusion between what a goal is and what a wish is. And I'll give you an example of that from a corporate perspective is I've been into an organisation that had this goal of wanting to be a top 200 listed company in Australia. But when we profiled their people, they, they all profiled very, very similar. And every time they brought in people who were different to them, they actually, they didn't last. They didn't cultivate that because culturally they felt like their way was, was the way. And whenever someone said, oh, I've got this idea, and they went, oh, no, we've tried that, that doesn't work. And so for, for me it was sort of a bit like that at school. So it, growing up for me is I tried really, really hard. I worked hard. I gave everything that I had, but I didn't quite get the results or get 
what I put in back. <laughs> but those skill sets actually came to me when I got into the workforce because I was a workhorse and no mission was ever um, too hard for me. So if I was ever going to do something, I put everything in it. And that's where the perfectionism came in for me. That was the behavior that wasn't a natural behavior. It was a learned behavior. I got rewarded for going the extra mile. So I noticed in my career that I was actually going from strength to strength because I was a workhorse. I'd work harder. I was committed. I was passionate. And whenever I was asked to do something, I would excel because I just put in the extra work. But as time went on, and then when I started to have like my son and he had health um, implications at the time, I was pulled in different directions and the stress for me actually <laughs> started to come through and, and I started to rethink about my behaviours and what actually helped me become successful um, no longer served me and how to rewire those behaviours so that I would create new behaviours that would take me to the next level throughout my career. And so, you know, you talk about there, that perfectionism, that real drive, et cetera, to, to when you take something on to complete it, but not just complete it, but complete it really, really well. Is that something that came through from your, your experience with your parents or, or wider family? Yes. So my mum is a perfectionist. So it was a learned behaviour from there, but it was also where I got my reward. So we talk about from a brain and a chemical perspective about the threat and the reward mechanisms. So when I talk about reward is when we get nice doses of dopamine to the brain that makes us feel good. It's the brain's natural drug. It helps us motivate and takes us to creative action. And so for me, if I look back, um, I had a year advisor who said you either had to work hard. If you didn't get good results, you'd be nothing, right? So it was that whole fear tactic that was really the start of my journey of leadership, right? <laughs> Which I don't recommend. <laughs> um, yes, it helped me strive. It helped me dig deep. And I was like, I'm going to prove to you <laughs> that I can, I can do this. But in the end, can I tell you, at a school reunion, years and years later, I was next to that year advisor. And you know what? I always, when I was back at school, had this, I will show you one day. And I was next to him and I actually said nothing to him because it became, it wasn't about proving it to anybody anymore. So as you get older <laughs> and you become wiser, you realise that you're on your own journey and you do things because you want to do them and not expecting anything in return. And so, but I heard a lot of my girlfriends and other students go up to and go, by the way, I achieved this, 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 and I just laughed. And I thought, it's really interesting. I have nothing to prove to anybody. I'm on my own race and I'm doing my purpose and achieving what I want to get out of life, not what other people expect of me. Mm. And I think that was a really big turning point. And it's one of the key um, quotes that I have on my wall, and that's why I'm looking at my wall at the moment, is, is about having high intentions and low attachment, and then there is um, no expectation. So I think for me a key learning 
in life is about setting my own goals and my own expectations of what I want to achieve, but at the same time being kind. You know, it's a learning journey. We often think about rich, achieving a goal going from A to B, but there's a lot of steps in between getting from A to B, and there are things known to us and unknown. And for me, priming the brain for the unknown has been one of my key achievements, I think, in life of being able to change tack and change direction and be um, adaptable. Yeah, very, very interesting. And I think, you know, from me listening to you, it's, it's really understanding the importance of understanding who you are. And you know, you knew who you were and you weren't going to be, um, I suppose, influenced in ways that would take you out of who you were from quite a young age. And I think that's really, really important because watch a lot of people in life who are influenced by other people, what they say, how they think they should behave, etc. And so I think that's really, really powerful. Was there someone along the way, though, that was kind of like a really strong guide or, or really strong influence in uh, in supporting what you were thinking there of, you know, look, I, I set the intention, but I don't have attachment and therefore there's no expectations. Was there someone that really was able to kind of paint that picture for you through through your formative years? Absolutely. So when I was working for Trend Micro, which is almost nine years ago for me, but I worked with this amazing managing director who was really tough, <laughs> really tough. But he taught me so many things, including having high intention and low attachment. And he said letting go of expectations was one of his key learnings. And, and this constantly evolving as a leader, knowing, you know what, I'm going to keep on growing. There is no limit. There is no ceiling. But I try different things and I learn from them. And I really love, I really love that, that thought process of going, you know what, we're constantly learning. If I look back as myself as a, a leader 15 years ago when I didn't understand neuroscience, when I had none of those tools or models, I was like, wow, there's so many things I would have done differently, but I now have those tools. And I'm now helping other people with those tools. And so my why becomes really, really strong and is the core of everything that I do is that all my lessons that I have learned, I want to then help other people to inspire other people that, like you said earlier, there are many ways to achieve something. Um, sorry, you said that to me before going <laughs> on recording, but you were talking about that there was there's a number of ways to achieve something. There's just not one way. And it's about figuring it out what it is for you and then how you can actually add value and build that ecosystem with other people who are like-minded who want to achieve similar things. Yes. Uh, and, you know, obviously, you know, you're talking a lot about neuroscience now. You're talking a lot about leadership, et cetera. But when you first, when you went and studied, you studied marketing and then went into marketing roles first. What was the drive for you to, or the fascination for you around marketing uh, for you to go down that career path at the beginning? Okay, so let me just go backwards even a little bit further, if I may. Yes. 
is I actually started, so when I finished, we're talking about Port Macquarie. So I did my HSC. I didn't quite get what I wanted. I was disappointed because I worked really hard and didn't quite get the result. I didn't quite know what I wanted to do. And I remember when I was around 16, 17 years of age and I said to my dad, and my dad is my hero and I dedicate my book to my dad because he's 99% sunshine, (laughs) always seeing um, opportunities in any situation. And so I said to my dad, I said, when I was 16, 17, dad, what's my purpose? How am I going to light the world on fire? And he said to me, he said, Vanessa, oh, good question. And he he laid back and he contemplated, he looked up to the sky and he, he had this big grin on his face. I went, oh, he's got a great idea. He says to me, Vanessa, your gift is people. And I went and I looked at him and no swearing was allowed back in these days. I was brought up quite strict. <laughs> but in my mind, I'm going, what the (laughs) what's going on here dad you look like you were on to something and you said people well can I tell you something a few years ago I went back to dad I said oh my god I was thinking about what you said to me when I was 16 17 years of age my dad is now 86 years of age still works by the way um part-time he's still active in his community he looks after my mum he's just He serves the family as an advisor. He's just an amazing human being and still really, really active. And he said, I said to him, do you you remember that time you told me my skill set was people? (laughs) And he said, yes. I said, if I look back, I've pivoted my career three times. It started when I finished school. I really didn't know what I wanted to do. And when he told me people was my skill set, I still didn't know what that meant. But I went into hospitality and business. So my first qualification was hospitality and business. I, again, I had this work ethic and I worked really, really hard, worked in the casino industry. I won awards wherever I went, basically. <laughs> I won awards because I was high performance, right? Everything was about setting a goal, achieving it. And I knew how to do that, right? I just was, I taught myself back then before I did all this amazing learning later on about how do you set goals and and achieve them? I just didn't know how to do them in brain-friendly ways like I do today. And so I had a goal for everywhere I went. I just, I set a goal and I worked towards it and and broke it down into bite-sized pieces. And so then when I got to the point where I was working in the casino, what happened to me was I got threshold for my life twice. I was working in the high rollers room and I was following the rules. <laughs> but rules get broken depending on who you are. <laughs> anyway, um, I got threatened for my life twice and I thought, you know what, you're not paying me enough <laughs> to do this. I need to find another career. It's not worth my life. <laughs> And um, at the time, I decided, okay, there has to be something else. So again, drawn to marketing, a few people in my area of circle of influence said, Jimmy, have you thought about marketing? And and I was interested in that. Again, people understanding behaviours. And I decided to go back and study that. And I got a job doing that. And I studied at the same time. And then my career really took off from there. 
Um, and then I got to the point in marketing, then I started to be interested um, not only in marketing, but the whole sales and bridging marketing and sales together. And how do you, how do you bring the two together effectively? And particularly then with the digital age and with artificial intelligence. And again, I was just intrigued by behavior and how do we tell a story and how do we capture the hearts and the minds of people and bring them along on that journey. And then again, that's when I started to get burnout and got sick and I didn't know how to reach the next set of goals with the same behaviors that I had, right? So those skills that I had built up no longer served me and I needed new ones, but I didn't know until I discovered neuroscience. And what neuroscience has done for me is really bridged the gap between what science knows and what business does and, and trying to bridge the two worlds in understanding, well, what is the purpose of the organisation? What do they really want to achieve? What does a real goal look like as opposed to a wish? And if we could make that happen, what would that actually look like? And how do we execute that from the top down, from your leadership team all the way down to your frontline staff? It has to be joined together and it must be done in a brain-friendly way so that we don't um, lead our people to have burnout or to get sick or to tire, if you want to call it about fatigue or overwhelm. And so that's been the journey that I have been on to really improve the lives of people, not just from a performance and productivity, but how they actually communicate and connect with other human beings. How do we bring people in as part of a community and feel like that we're part of something bigger than just ourselves? Wow. Wow. And, and I, I can just feel your draw to the, the neuroscience and leadership aspect all the time. I do want to dive one more thing here in marketing, though. I'd really like to know from you, your, your time where you were focused in marketing and then even that transition to sales, what's the one thing that you learned during that time that it continues to help you every single day? I think it's the storytelling ability to be able to tell the vision of what the why is. When you understand what your why and your purpose is, it really helps you set up to how you make decisions and how you communicate that to other people and get other people to buy into that. And when I say buy in, it's 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 done in a way of purpose in the sense of how do other people fit in with that vision? not with, oh, well, this is my vision. How do you fit in with my vision? It's about how do you create a vision that is self, self-serving to the greater to the greater purpose? And how can you help people to fit in with that? So going back to, I guess, the sales and marketing perspective, one of the things that I that I achieved, one of my biggest achievement back in those days would be bringing the company I was working for at the time was Trend Micro Internet Security. And I was the head of sales, productivity and enablement. And it was really about looking at the buyer's journey and where the touch points were for, for the communication for every human being that touched the buying cycle, both from the customer perspective and also from the company perspective, how did we serve our buyers throughout that buying 
cycle, whether you're in accounting, front office, uh, technical, sales, marketing, and how do we actually add value and how do we connect so that we break down solos? Because we have different people performing different tasks. How do we actually bring that together and really understanding the why we're doing this and, and the value that it adds and how we can improve that process? So for me, doing that and helping people to add value at each step across the buying cycle, not only did we lift performance and productivity, but our engagement also went up. And when our engagement went up as a team, it impacted the customer satisfaction as well. It's all linked. And so for that organisation, I helped them grow 30% in revenue growth in just 18 months. Very good. And you're touching there on story, uh, you know, business storytelling, etc. We're doing a big piece, uh, research and development piece on business storytelling at the moment. And the one question that kind of sits at the heart of this is, when everyone is able to share with us that business storytelling is really important and is valuable, why then are most people not using business storytelling? And so I'd love to know from your perspective, why are you seeing that, yes, we're talking about it. Yes, we know it's useful and valuable, but why aren't people using it more often? Because we haven't trained our brain to be able to do that on automatic. So when something's not a habit or something that's not ingrained and it takes time. So would you agree? And I'll ask you a question because obviously this is a piece that you're working on. Have you found that it takes longer to do the story taking piece? It takes more thought and preparation. What's your experience with, with doing it differently from going from just doing tasks to then taking time out to think about the story? What energy is required? Yeah, so it, it's, a, it's a really good question to throw back. Some of the things that we are seeing so far is the fact that people's experience of storytelling start from a parent or a grandparent who tells their child a story. Our mind, when people start talking about business storytelling, goes to stories, the big epic story in movies. Uh, the, it goes to the characters and the, and the narration of, of books and what they read. So their mind goes to something that's completely different to for them in their mind, they're seeing this and going, but that's very different to the workforce. It's very different to the situations I'm in while I'm working. Now, the generally the, the good examples of business storytelling they may see as role models inside their workspace are inspirational, aspirational stories that are delivered by their leaders. So it's still not, in most cases, applicable to what they're doing. So the gap between where people are at and facts and figures and where they sit and what they understand of story innately and what is what they're predisposed to is so far away from what they're seeing and no one is actually showing them how to put it into place from what is a client story? Well, how do we use a personal experience story? How do we use imagine if type story when we are you know, looking at change or taking people to see the future? So, so it's, it's the way that it's articulated and brought through is the reason why people aren't doing it. 
it, it, the gap in anything, right? So you're talking about wishes and, and goals, etc. If you set a big aspirational goal and you don't step, put any steps along the way to get to it, the gap is too big. It's overwhelming. You go, yeah, that sounds great, but they won't do anything. And that's where procrastination comes on in and the stories we tell to justify why we didn't achieve it. Well, yeah. yes. And then there's that other part of story, right? It is the it is the mental side of story. It's the confidence side of story. It is the internal narrative that we are telling ourselves about whether we can do something or not. Um, but until someone has the guide and can show them that the gap is not too far to leap, they're not going to change. That's correct. And you see what it is with the with the brain, that the habit center of the brain. So it's not that we can't do anything, we can, mm. right? So there's a lot of myths around the brains that can't teach an old dog new tricks. That's not true. You're never too old to learn or to create new wiring. It just takes energy. Mm. So to create a new habit, for example, my son is 17 years of age. He's learning to drive. He's doing his HSC this year. And he said to me recently, to my husband and I, he said, Mom and Dad, how do you um, drive a car, talk, listen, play the radio, um, drink, you know, have something to eat, drive and concentrate and do all of that? He goes, I'm totally exhausted um, when I'm finished driving. And I said, yeah, because once you've done it over and over and over and over again. So when you're creating new wiring within the brain, it's about that repetition. It's doing it over and over and over. And over time, it gets easier. It's why I always set goals or chunk things down in 90 days and then break the 90 days down into 30 and 60 day milestones because the smaller you can break it down and the more it's digestible, and you have rewards along the way, which is that nice dose of dopamine that I was talking about, the more easier it is. So going back to uh, storytelling, storytelling is the same thing. If you're not used to telling stories to capture the hearts of people, which is initiating behavior, if that is not your behavioral trait, but it's something you want to do, you need to understand and work out well what are the steps to start telling stories it's like what you're saying before defining the characters but if can i give you a real life story of how i'm teaching my son Go for it. so my son is a is an avid rock climber he's dyslexic he's doing his hsc this year he knows what he wants in life he's very very clear on his vision his vision board is when you walk in his room it's it's delightful I did not teach him this. This is his own work. And uh, he really knows what he wants in life, which is great because when you know what your purpose is and you know what your direction is, it's more easily to make decisions based going on that path. Anyway, he's an avid rock climber. Everything is about rock climbing for him. Um, that is his core passion. It has been for many, many years. And so when he's struggling at school, because school is a bit of a struggle for him being dyslexic, but he loves learning. So it's, <laughs> I'm very, very lucky in the sense that I have someone who doesn't give up. He keeps trying and keeps trying and keeps trying. He keeps coming back and giving it a go, which is awesome. But he had this really interesting rock climbing challenge. So this is indoors and just for the purpose of the story, it's the, it's the white holds that he was working at. It was a real challenge for him. And he kept falling 
in the same spot over and over again. And I said to him to come off the wall because he was getting really, really frustrated, kept doing the same thing over and over and still falling in the same spot. And I could see the frustration building up and the threat triggers happening here. And I just told him to breathe. So get oxygen into your brain, okay, reset. So I gave him a drink of water. I asked him to look at the wall again and look at this white track that he was trying to conquer. And I said, I want you to visualise what it's like to get to the top. I want you to just, and he went to walk to the wall. I said, no, 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 just step back. I just want you to visualise you actually going through the moves. And what's it going to feel like actually achieving the top? So he did that. I said, okay, I want you to go back to where you keep on falling on the wall, right? And visualizing why do you keep, what is it that's keep tipping you and you're falling off? What's throwing your balance? And he went through the steps. He goes, oh, I've got my hands and my feet in the wrong position. I said, okay, visualize that for me. What would it look like if you change that? So he stepped through the moves in his brain and I can see his hands moving as he was visualizing it. I said, have you got it in your, in your head? Have you visualized what that looks like? And he said, yes. I said, okay, take a big deep breath for me and let it out. So he did that and I said, okay, go. And he stepped through exactly how he visualized it. He moved his hands and his feet in that spot that he kept falling in. He changed it and he got to the top. And when he got to the top, he held onto that last ledge and he was just cheering. The whole gym stopped and clapped because it was infectious because he was just so ecstatic. When he has challenges at school and and when he's trying to work through a problem, whether it's maths or whether it's English or whether it's his woodwork or whether it's um, whatever topic it is, I get him to go through the same sequence, visualise. What is it? Where is, where, where's the problem? And what could you do different? What are the options that you have to actually change that? And then what would that look like? And really getting people to visualise that. And this is what storytelling does is it helps you visualise it. And I'm sure you feel like you're climbing this wall <laughs> with my son here, right? But I get him to visualise and, and, and to use this story, a real-life story that means something to him in another aspect of his life to help unblock when he feels like he's getting stuck or he has an obstacle and he doesn't know how to get out of it. Yeah, very good. And we can talk all day on story, uh, which is fascinating. But I, I do I do now want to dive into your world of, you know, go deeper into your world of neuroscience. We have, you've uh, brought up lots of little pieces along the way. And, and I just love your fascination for the brain here as well. So, you know, shifting into that, that focus of neuroscience and leadership and performance and business success, what for you was the real trigger to dedicate your life to this? It was getting sick and losing my mentor. And then when I had my son who was um, sick and he almost died at 18 months old, I had to re-evaluate what was important to me 
and what did I really want out of life? And, and this wasn't just me. It was also with my husband to go, what do we really want out of life? You know, we're both hard workers. We're both very dedicated um, people. We're high achievers, both of us. But if we want and we care about health and fitness and trying to what does balance look like for us as a family? Mm. And so all of those all of those obstacles that we faced were opportunities to reevaluate and reevaluate what our options were and what they could look like. And so for me, I knew that I had a purpose to help people. Um, I just really didn't know exactly that path until I uncovered the neuroscience. And for me, having, I guess, come from very left brain orientated organizations which was obviously very much about high growth high revenue <laughs> high customer satisfaction like I grew up in very much organized I was attracted to high performance organizations because I was a high achiever but then for me the linchpin was all of those things getting sick my met losing my mentor my son being sick and really trying to figure out what was important to me and what sort of life did I really want to live? And I knew that I had a higher purpose to help people. And for me, that has been bridging that gap between what neuroscience knows and how to apply it in real life situations, how to apply it in bite-sized pieces to make it real for organisations, leaders, people, and so that people can get the right balance between work and life and making sure that we have the fuel and the energy to be able to sustain that. You've written something here and I'm really interested to go a bit deeper with this. Tomorrow's leaders will be those who can think outside of the expected. Right, we, we hear of... Uh, those who think outside the box, those who, um, you know, how do you how do you shift from putting square pegs into square holes and round pegs into round holes? So, so what for you does that mean? That tomorrow's leaders will be those who can think outside the expected. So this is about the unknown, and I was talking about this before. So our brain seeks certainty it's a survival mechanism that comes from all the way back to caveman days so the difference is is back in the caveman days it was about saboteur tigers bears and a whole lot of different things right and and so threat and reward was reward was safety <laughs> and keeping us safe and that tribal instinct from keeping my people safe <laughs> from a leadership perspective where we fast forward to now in 2022, where we have different, different threats, right, and different things that are not making us feel safe, right, whether it's in the environment or whether it's what um, we're trying to control. So the brain seeks certainty. And in seeking certainty, we sometimes, um, it's sort of like, and another way that I explain it in the book is about our brain is like, think of it like a fire drill. In the office, 
we've practiced. So before we had fire drills, what, what used to happen? Can you remember those days where before fire drills and before we practice an emergency exit? What, what happened to people if there was a fire? This is beyond my days. Uh, I've always had fire drills. <laughs> I mean, obviously, they would panic. They would get into trouble. They would probably uh, try and fight the fire rather than avoid it. Um, people would scramble out of yeah. a door or an exit and there was like panic, right? Mm. And then we brought in fire drills. So occupational health and safety came on in to go, okay, if there's a fire drill and the alarm goes off, this is step one, this is step two, this is step three. It's about being kind and orderly, helping people. We walk out all together. If this happens, so basically it was priming the brain mm. so that the brain wouldn't just go into threat and just it would turn into chaos, right? And people would just all try to rush out the same small little door. You've got all these people jamming themselves through. Well, it's a bit like this for the unknown. We've actually got to prime the brain for the unknown. So for known obstacles and unknown obstacles. So prime the brain. But we can't prime the brain if we have nothing left in the tank. So what I mean by that is if you've got back-to-back -back meetings or your people are scheduled back, 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 and it's task, 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 meeting, 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 that is not where people have their best ideas. This is not where innovation comes from. This is not where connection thrives from, right? Is that if people are back to back back and then you've got an emergency, then people are going to do like the fire drill, which is trying to all squeeze through a small little door and we're just going to push, 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 push until we get through. <laughs> Instead of really understanding well, what are the steps and processes and map this out when we're in a clear state. So for a real life example, because I like to make this practical for people, is that having time in your diary planned for the unknown. So having time and depending on where you do your best thinking. So for example, if you do your best thinking in the morning, protect that time, protect that time and then have time outside of that for the unknown. So if people need to reach you or if people need to connect with you or brainstorm ideas or pick your thinking, that you have time in your diary to do that, that it's not jammed, packing, go, I'm really sorry, Craig, I'm just too busy at the moment. <laughs> Can I schedule you in my diary next week? Oh, no, 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 it's important. It's really important <laughs> that I talk to you now, right? So what happens if, if people are feeling full? then we can't have creative ideas. What happens is your brain is like a filing cabinet system and it's like having drawers within the filing cabinet and you go to your top drawer and you just pick out whatever comes up first for you. It's almost automatic. But they're not necessarily, and they could be your best ideas, but if you had time to absorb and you had time to think through it, you might actually come up with better ideas. And that's through going through to your long-term memory, which is down further in those filing cabinet drawers. But you need time and space to do that, to connect the different parts within the brain, to be able to do that. Yeah, I, look, I, I think that is, it's a great way to explain it and, and how we deal with situations. I think some of the best advice I ever got was never schedule any more than 20% of your time in meetings. 
I like that. That's really, really great. Because you- and it depends on your role, right? It depends on your role. It depends. But how you set up your day really, really matters. Knowing where you do your thinking. Is it in the, where do you do your best thinking? Is it morning? Is it afternoon? Is it evening? Is it a combination? Where are they? Like, be conscious about, think about where do I have my best ideas? For me, they come in the shower or when I'm walking my dog, you know, it's not necessarily why I'm actually um, at my desk or at my screen. So it's really about understanding where are you having your best ideas? Where are you solving problems? And then what is it for your people? So if you're leading others, understanding what it is for other people so that you're setting up times when you bring people together, what is the best time? Now, you might not get it all right if you've got morning people afternoon and evening people but it's about getting them to buy in what does as a team when is the best time to get together or can we alternate it or can i give you the agenda ahead of time so that you can actually digest it and so for example i remember i remember this high performer and her leader did her best thinking in the evening so the meetings were always around 5 p.m but she was up working at 7 a.m and she had nothing left in the tank at 5 p.m so every time the leader would ask her for her idea she's like i've just got nothing there (laughs) there's nothing in the tank (laughs) but if she hadn't had the agenda beforehand and had a couple of days to digest it and so when she's in her happy place and thinking of ideas whether it was the shower or walking the dog or whatever it was for her or exercising in the gym from memory it was for her is then she'd be able to write them down and be able to talk through that then so that's just an example about what brain friendliness looks like from not just an individual perspective but from a team environment as well Now, last year you launched a book called Rewire for Success, The Art of Imagination in the Future of Leadership. What is the book? I mean, obviously the book's around neuroscience, but what is the book uh, for, for those who are interested in what you do? What is this book about and who's it really targeted for? Yeah, great question. So it's an easy guide for using neuroscience to improve choices for work, life, and well-being. What does that mean? So I came up with this framework called FOOD. So F-O-O-D, right? And the FOOD framework stands for the F is how do you fuel your brain, right, with the right ingredients? Because if you're going to change or make change, you need energy. If you don't have energy, then it's very hard to create new wiring within the brain. So if you constantly go, 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 like what I was over 15 years ago, and then every time there was an issue, my brain was exploding and flipping its lid, then it's very, very hard to take on something new because you physically and mentally feel tired, fatigue and overwhelmed. So food is about looking at how do you feel your brain from an exercise, oxygen perspective, mindfulness, rest and recovery, And so for me, this go, 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 go all the time was when I did actually sit down, like my husband used to laugh at me, whenever I actually sat down anywhere, I would just fall asleep. And he said, I've never met anyone that could just be in the car or on a plane or be anywhere or just fall asleep anywhere. And that's because I was go, go, go. As soon as I actually 
stop still, I would just fall over. <laughs> and so I've had to build into mindfulness and being present and really understanding what that looks like for me. And that's different for every person, what mindfulness looks like. Again, it's one of those terms that's very broad and it can mean different things to different people. But yoga has been life-changing for me and is part of my must-dos in a week. Um, it helps me calm. It helps me reset. It brings oxygen and it takes me to a place um, that I just can't go to doing anything else. <laughs> but that's my own personal journey, right? So it's working out for each person, what does it take? What are the right ingredients of food, exercise, mindfulness, rest and recovery, the things you enjoy doing, making sure that you have the right combination throughout your week. Sleep is another one, you know, making sure that you're getting quality sleep, that you are energizing. Because if you're waking up every day and you don't have a full battery, right, then you're only operating um, at that percentage. So it's a bit like your mobile phone. If, if you have lots of apps open to your mobile phone, what happens to it, Craig? It runs the... Runs it runs the battery low really quick. Yeah, so your brain is a bit like a mobile phone, is that if you haven't recharged it the night before or you haven't had it on battery um, and you have lots of apps open, it really, really drains the battery life of your phone, which makes it stop working or slows down. And then that can lead to frustration, right? So, fuel your, so the F in food is about fueling the brain with the right ingredients and knowing what it is for you. The second one is about the O is about organizing your brain, like I was talking about before, knowing where you do your best thinking, where do you do your deep thinking, where do you solve problems, where do you get your innovative energy from, where. So knowing the place, knowing the time, and how you communicate that to other people that you work with so that they know that if you're gone quiet for a period of time during the day or you're not on instant messenger or something, that you're actually doing your deep work and this is the why you're doing it, yeah? Um, the other O is about obstacles and about setting up your brain to how to overcome obstacles with the brain in mind. And so this is really about priming the brain like I was talking about the fire drill. So really while you're calm, understanding the processes and steps when you reach an obstacle, like I gave the story of my son with the rock climbing and getting stuck and then applying that to other parts and aspects within his schoolwork to how to overcome obstacles. So having those step-by-step -step processes so that when you are in a threat state, you go, okay, step one, this is what I need to do. Step two, step three, and you work through that and you become calm within, within that obstacle that you're facing with so that you can gain clarity on what to do next. And the D is really about understanding what drives behavior. And for me, understanding how people think and function is a real game changer for actually achieving business results, both from an individual team environment and also from an organization perspective. I really love that food analogy uh, and, and really looking forward to reading the book, actually. Uh, it's uh, excited as we go through this conversation. 
to feel your passion and the common sense aspects that you bring to uh, being able to understand how the brain works and how we can implement that into our daily life and how that can improve our performance and work and other aspects of our life. Now, we all know smart people have great answers, but the most successful people ask great questions. When was the last time you did something for the first time? Writing my book is the first time I've ever done it and I've learned a lot by actually doing it. And it took a lot of energy <laughs> and I'm used to writing articles. And so for me, writing, sitting down, writing a book, which was my COVID New Year's resolution, I wanted, um, I wanted to actually make a change in the sense in the lives of others during this really hard time over the last two years. And I could see a lot of people being in this threat state and I wanted to be able to create something to make a positive change. But writing a book was very, very challenging for me. <laughs> it had a lot of obstacles, I can assure you. What is the one question that you would love to solve? Is how do we change the education system to cater for a neurodiverse, broad spectrum ways of learning? I still think we have a long way to go about how do we actually educate people who think differently and who learn differently. And I feel that that is really the crust of, of the people that come through to the, work, to the workforce and being able to think outside the square in new and different ways. We need to be able to cultivate the neurodiverse and people and cultivate a different type of learning right from the word go. And I think neuroscience and harnessing what we're learning all the time because we're learning more about the brain now than what we did in the last 10 to 15 years and what we did 400 years ago and we will continue to learn more and more as technology advances i love it neurodiversity is one of our key components of how we select people coming into our organization uh, we want people that have a different point of view different perspective different way of learning um, so it's so good to hear that who is an inspiring great leader for you? And oh, sorry, what is an what does an inspiring great leader mean to you? And who is someone that is a great example of this right now? And I think I alluded to it earlier, but Angela Cobble, who's the CIO of Johnson and Johnson, incorporating this wellness coach within her leadership and getting her people to be part of the thought process and around defining the why and how do we work out problems together and individually but making sure that we understand what people's threats are and what their rewards are and how we balance everything out to make sure that we're all in it together I think is really really important. Uh, it's been a it's been a really inspiring conversation today really really enjoyed it. Uh, if people out there would like to connect with you, how can people learn more about what you do and what is the best way for them to connect with you? Thank you, Craig. You can connect with me two ways, either via my website, which is linksuccessoronword.com.au or via LinkedIn, which is Vanessa with two N's and two S's because it throws everybody. 
McCamley on LinkedIn. I'd love to connect with you and share more insights over time. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today, Vanessa, and we'll put those links in the show notes as well. Um, but I've really, it's been fascinating. We've dived into a kind of your perfectionism when you were young and, and how you approach life to your dad seeing that your, uh, that your real strength was around people and for you trying to discover that over many years and finally figuring out what that is to shifting through different career paths of delving into hospitality and what you learned there working in places uh, such as casinos and even in high-stress situations to being involved in the marketing and the sales and, and the growth that you're achieving there with companies like Trend Micro to now being in a space where you're really helping people, leaders, businesses through neuroscience to be able to uh, implement the right behaviors and habits so that they can be really successful and achieve the things that they want to. So Vanessa, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it and look forward to many conversations in the future. Thank you so much. It's time for you to join the Inspiring Great Leaders movement by visiting craigjohns.com.au. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to hashtag Inspiring Great Leaders. We would love it if you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the Craig Johns LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next Inspiring Great Leaders podcast, where the ordinary don't belong.